1: oil prices surging after President Trump tweeted that he expects and hopes that both Saudi Arabia and Russia would cut back about 10 million barrels of oil uh, and maybe substantially more. However, there is a concern about whether this actually is concrete. And you're seeing that oil prices coming off some of the earlier highs. Uh, A spokesman for Vladimir Putin, Dmitry Peskov, said the Russian president had not spoken to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on Raising some confusion about whether this is something that has legs. Joining us now to discuss, I'm so pleased to say, is Stephen Shork, who's been tracking the oil market uh, for a very long time, president of the Shork Group. Stephen, let's just start with the news: the idea that President Trump has made it very clear that he wants to get involved, bring these two players to the table. Let's say he succeeds, and let's say that let's take this on its face value: that they do both cut 10 million barrels of oil in production. How much? much? Much will that matter fundamentally at this point for the price of oil?
2: Uh, From a uh, obviously from a supply standpoint, it it is a significant move. But we have to keep in mind that on the other side of the equation, and this is what made the Russian-Saudi move to put so much oil on the market a month ago so odd, because the world economy is dead for all intents and purposes. And as we just saw with yesterday's. Report from the weekly report from the EIA: U.S. crude oil producers are still producing way too much crude oil. The price of U.S. exports is not even competitive anymore. So the United States is going to now become even more glutted with its own oil, and the refineries can't make any money because the crack spreads, the margins between gasoline and diesel fuel and crude oil, have absolutely crashed. So refinery demand here in the United States is dead. So what we've had. Here Here is a massive crash on the front end of the curve, whereas prices today, which normally in a healthy commodity market, trade at a premium to prices tomorrow. But what's happened over the past week is prices today have come crashing down. For instance, at one point last week, oil on the spot market traded at a 44% discount for the same contract a year from now. So what does that mean? Oil is bidding for storage. There's only so much storage capacity around the globe. Here in the United States, our biggest complex of storage is in Oklahoma, Cushion. That is the delivery complex of the NYMEX contract. By July, we're going to be at max capacity in that storage. So now what happens? Even if we're producing at greatly reduced rates – Demand is going to outpace that. And when we run out of storage capacity, you're looking at potentially another significant leg lower in oil prices.
0: All right. So let me ask the simple question, the non-energy person. Why don't people stop? Why don't these just stop producing oil?
2: It's an excellent question. Here in the United States, the biggest issue is debt. We have a debt bomb in the shale patch. So it's this nasty cycle where I have to produce more because I need cash in to pay down my debt. Now, we just saw Whiting Petroleum file for bankruptcy the other day. That is the first domino in a number of dominoes in this industry that are about to fall. So you will start to see production pulled back as these smaller producers tip over. The bigger problem is Canada. Given the way they uh, dig their oil out of the ground, it's not simply just shutting off production. It is an extremely complicated process. So Canada is stuck. They cannot cut down on their production. So what you're going to see, and we have already started to see in some of the more esoteric oil markets in the plains, you will see negative crude oil prices. That is to say the producers are going to pay you to take the oil away from them.
1: Yeah, we're already hearing about reports of that actually occurring, and I'm just trying to to push this forward. I mean, people are talking about how supplies are not coming offline. Meanwhile, demand has absolutely plummeted. It's not; it's almost non-existent when you look at airplanes just not flying around. And I'm just wondering, how much does the supply picture even matter, given how much currently is in storage, and given the fact that we're not seeing necessarily an end date for when this the demand drop off is gonna is gonna just finally. Uh, be different or
2: change. That's an excellent point. And that's why I'm not buying on this headline or this tweet about U.S. cutting off producers, because this is yes, part of it is supply. But again, it's the other side of the variable and demand. And and you nailed it. We don't know the economy is dead. The economy here, there, everywhere around the globe is dead. And we don't know when it's going to be, uh, come, come back, because we don't know yet how long this virus is going to stick around. You've got reports that, oh, it will die in the warm weather. You've got other reports, oh, no, it's going to expand in the warm weather. So we still don't know. So as we continue to kick down the road, right, the, the COVID um, protocol pushed back to April 30th. You know what? And then it's going to be pushed back to May 31. We're already talking about potentially the NFL season next fall being canceled or being greatly delayed because we simply don't know. So the longer we don't know, demand will continue to outstrip whatever production is pulled off of the market. This is an unbelievably inconceivable situation we are in right now. So what's the low point that you foresee uh, for crude prices? $9.75. That is the low that we saw back in April 1986. So, that, that, so, so we, the markets like to go to the extremes. $9.75 for, for NYMEX WTI futures. That is the short report in our daily model. That is how low we think we can go. And to that point, guys, we are all into this together. So we here at the short group made a decision two and a half weeks ago to offer our research for free to all market participants. We all need to work together to get through this. So, yes, it's nice that we're getting a a pop today in crude oil prices. I don't think it's going to last.
0: Wow. Stephen Shork, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, $9.75. I think that's the takeaway here. Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group. Let's get a sense of maybe how to think about this market. We welcome Cole Smead. He's a president and portfolio manager of Smead Capital Management. Cole, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, give yeah. us your sense of kind of how you're thinking about the markets these days, given this, just these uh, incredible volatility that we're seeing. Uh,
3: but appreciate having me on. This is one of the five greatest buying opportunities of the last 50 years, which would be the bottom in 74 the bottom in 82, the bottom in 87, the bottom in 09, and today. And I say that because. We always get to these junctures, and people can always tell you how much worse it will become. Jeffrey Gunlock was the poster child of that of the last couple of weeks saying, we're not gonna, we have not reached the lows of what we're going to see. And at the same time, uh, look at the opportunities it's putting out there, where people have no optimism. The reason why oil is rallying is because no one owns it, and if you've got to put a buy order in, they're all going into it at the same time. So, um, so it, it just—it's such a great time to be alive and be a stock picker because um, th- this isn't going to translate into perfect perfection for the index, but it is going to change how we price individual securities.
1: Cole, I'm loving this. I got to <laughs> say, I'm sitting here and we've just been like bombarded by gloom for just day after day. It is yeah. absolutely depressing. The number yeah. we got today actually was emotionally horrific when it came to how many people are being laid off. You said this is a great time to be alive. It is the buying opportunity of a lifetime. You have economists saying they're flying in the dark and every day they're downgrading their estimates of the U.S. economy. And yet you still have a lot of investors who, like you, see this as a buying opportunity. And Lori Calvasina of RBC just did actually a survey of investors that found a lot of optimism. So where are you seeing sort of your conviction being vindicated? that this is an incredible buying opportunity, given how uncertain people are about whether we're even headed toward the next depression?
3: Yeah, no, it's a a great question. Well, first off, you got to remember the consumer came into this in a great spot. We had the lowest household debt service going back to 1981 we've ever had. And then secondly, last year we had the highest savings rate of a non-recessionary year of the last 50 years. So the interesting part is the consumer was actually ready for this because they just weren't borrowing money like normal. Corporations, in comparison, were borrowing money and and we're seeing some of the effects of that. You know, WeWork would be the most recent example of what has borrowed money and and you know a lot of money being thrown. Out of look like now, go go back. Let's go back three years ago when the summer of retail malaise was going on. Someone would have had to step into what seemed like very dark circumstances in retail in a, a business like Target. Well, you, you look this year, Target's getting lavish with praise by investors because that's a place that you can go click and collect, and their business has done great through this process. So that, that was a kind of a similar circumstance in a sub-industry that had very particular uh, circumstance around that. What is the opportunity right now is cyclicality tied to the economy. And the consumer and things like oil and financials and uh, things like mall reads out there couldn't be more left for dead. Macy's left the S&P 500 index today as an example. If those things make a big comeback over the next three to five years, you're going to find the S&P 500 index not owning them, as they typically do at major low points in buying opportunities in the history of the stock market.
0: So, Cole, what what is your sense of just to, to give a sense of your optimism? What how do you think the economy is going to react here over the next, you know, year or so?
3: Oh, it's a great question. So, I have a wonderful book for you guys that uh, I picked up: Barton Biggs' uh, Wealth, War, and Wisdom, which really deals with the circumstances around World War II between 1940 and 42, particularly what it was like for the UK stock market, what it was like for the U.S. stock market. You get to points where the news can't get worse. And bad news continues to come out after that. It's just it's less bad. Okay, so when we talk about flattening the curve and that kind of stuff tied to the coronavirus, we are talking about news becoming less bad. And, and, And the beautiful part about this is it's fun to read a book and say, here's what happened in the past. And you can understand life looking back, but you have to live it forward. And that's the great part about this opportunity is that while people are telling you just terrible things, you know that at some point the optimists always win. And by the way, they always win. There's just no question about that. And what you want to do with capital right now is the most important question, not whether you want to be an owner of businesses that are publicly traded.
1: Cole, I want to drink your Kool-Aid so bad just because it's so depressing. <laughs> I, I got to say, you know, when I say it's so depressing, you say that, that, that news can't get it that much worse. It is every day. I mean, well, really, you, you we you track remember, it. it
3: every... you, 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 yeah, it, it, trust me, Here, you know, you got to remember, too. You guys are sitting in New York. At, you know our company is based in Seattle. We were one of the hot spots just like you are. So you got to remember, a lot of the news media is tied to a geography that's being greatly affected, and your lives, just like ours, have been greatly affected. The problem with that is that's not Peoria, Illinois, and a lot of this has to do about what's going to go on in America. Secondly, you, you, some of your uh, writers have been writing about this. What typically happens when we trap Americans at home for a period of time? We tend to have a lot of, of babies being birthed. And guess what? That is so good for the economy and the consumer in cyclical businesses like <laughs> autos and homes. And no one's saying, oh, by the way, what do you do when the things are slow and your spouse or you make babies or, or whatever? <laughs> it's quite a fun thing.
1: You, know, you go, you go to the uh, alcohol store, you got to get the alcohol yeah, store. I, I got four
3: kids, so I'm preaching to the choir all right, on all right,
1: okay, so aside from making babies as people are sequestered in their homes drinking uh and and sequestered with their spouses, I am wondering going forward in terms of some of the massive shifts. In the yeah. economy that people are talking about this increase this pushed toward uh, you know an online world where you have online shopping where you have the retailers that were struggling before closing down where you have malls being either repurposed or left to to die i mean what do you say about that
3: yeah i think about the oil shocks in the 1970s how fun was it to sit in a gas line I mean, I, I was not born then, but just the thought of that and, my, you know, hearing it from my parents is that that, just was, that was not fun. That was depressing. Um, now, did they ever want to deal with that circumstance again or be in that situation? The answer is no. Forever they were changed because of that circumstance. So, for example, to your question about online shopping, can I shop online right now? Yes. The wonderful delivery person from Amazon will come to my door anytime I want right now. We are Here's lucky because we're struggling how, with that, but carry on. Cool, yeah. How fun is that? Oh, it's depressing. It reminds me of that time we had COVID. Do you remember that? Well, that does not sound like a lot of fun. So much like if you came from communist Russia, thinking of red, red lines, that, the connotation in your mind, it doesn't, it's not something you ever want to look at again. So I, I think the one inevitable I, I can guarantee is change. And what we're doing right now is not what we'll be doing in 12 months. But the market has reoriented stock market capitalizations around what we're doing right now. What the wise man does at the beginning, the fool does at the end. And I think there's a lot of fools trying to say, well, what if this goes on for two years? Just like they said, oh, Britain might be obliterated as the Germans cross the channel and ruin the world in 1940. They could always tell us how much worse it was going to get. The problem is, you know, Churchill was optimistic even though he was depressed. Okay, And that produced a lot of success in stocks the next five to ten years when no one thought good circumstances could come out of that either.
0: All right, Cole, let me just. I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, but just summarize for us kind of the, some sectors that you're looking yeah. at right now.
3: Yeah, so uh, in, in the discretionary world, uh, di- there's uh, very interesting opportunities. Um, you know, some of the things that get to open up is there's businesses that can benefit from more people having trouble in credit or income. Uh, so we've been out there looking at businesses that have that cyclicality tied to the consumer. Um, we own Chevron. The oil world is only looking uh, more attractive every day. Uh, we own Mace Rich, a Mall I mean, uh, you, you, could, you could take the market cap of most of anything dealing with stuff that you do going out in the evening right now, and you could fit that into any technology stock you'd like in terms of total market cap. So, uh, you know, consumer, cyclical, tidied economy, and heavily beat up with insider buying right now. The insiders are showing their hand. And like I said, as a stock picker, it's just a dream.
1: Cole Smead, keep living that dream. Wow. Thanks for bringing us some some optimism on a day where there is very little of it. Cole Smead, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management with $3.3 billion of assets under management based in Seattle, uh, another one of the hotspots for uh, the virus in addition to New York City and parts beyond, as you like to say, Paul. Paul The number that came out today was devastating when it came to the jobless claims, 6.65 million jobless claims blowing away the previous record set last week of 3.1 million claims, which was revised upward. The picture is bleak, getting bleaker, and it's dramatic, and it's painful, and the human stories behind these numbers are devastating. Yelena Slyetjeva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us now. Elena, when you dig into these numbers, what do you find when it comes to the job sectors that are disproportionately affected?
4: Good morning, Lisa. Indeed, uh, we are uh, really lucky to uh, be employed uh, in this situation and uh, working from home, but a lot of people out there, especially small businesses, are uh, uh, devastated uh, by this situation. So uh, the extraordinary increase uh, reflected uh, in today's numbers in jobless claims. It, this uh, number is not only showing the inflow of new layoffs, but it is also uh, showing a catch-up in application processing. Uh, people were just uh, filing for claims, but uh, the labor departments were not able to process all the claims in prior weeks. So we will continue to see these numbers going forward for uh, several weeks ahead. And and if we see these numbers in the vicinity of 3 to 5 million persisting, the unemployment rate will climb towards uh, something like 15% in April. Um, I I, I really think this uh, situation is not, not... it. And uh, it's at this point, you know, making economic forecasts is uh, a very difficult task.
0: So, Elena, that's unfortunately kind of where I think most people want to go is trying to get a sense of, you know, I guess the second quarter, how that might shake out. We know it's going to be bad. We've seen numbers as GDP contractions, 20 percent, 30 percent. And then a lot of people had it kind of bouncing back in the third and fourth quarter. Given kind of just as Bloomberg Economics right now is trying to digest this number this morning, just give us broadly, you know, you don't have to give us the exact numbers, but broadly how you think uh, economic uh, growth and contraction might look for the remainder of the year.
4: Uh, so I think we will not see a V-shaped recovery and not even a U-shaped recovery uh, at all. I think uh, we have already... Um, uh, kind of crossed to the point of no return for that, and uh, I think that um, we will see very, very slow L-shaped uh, sort of recovery going forward. Uh, yes, when this is over, and luck- luckily we will have the cure for uh, you know a vaccine or uh, some medicine for the virus, uh, this will uh, the economy will slowly go back to normal. But a lot of uh, things, I think have been changed, and uh, it's a structural change in my view. Uh, I think we will not uh, go back uh, cruising or uh, you know going out as much as we used to. So uh, I think services sector will hurt most and for a very long time. Um, in terms of payrolls numbers, remember that we have uh, payrolls numbers coming out uh, at the end of this week, tomorrow, uh, the numbers for March will just uh, only catch the frontage of the economic shutdown uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, April numbers will be mind boggling, probably, with millions losing jobs uh, in the payrolls report for April.
1: And I'm looking right now at just some of the breakdown of the state numbers, and you can see. The states with the highest number of filings California with more than a million, Pennsylvania with almost 800,000, New York with almost 450,000. I mean, these numbers are just mind boggling. Also, Michigan and Ohio seeing some serious uh, numbers coming out there. Can you elaborate, Yelena, what you say that you do not see people going cruising for a very long time, that you don't think services will recover uh, for the foreseeable future? Why not?
4: Well, because uh, think about it in terms of the financial crisis or uh, September 11th. So that changed uh, a lot of things for us permanently. And uh, we just, uh, you know, we will not go back uh, as easily as uh, we used to into a lot of these things. Because people, even if we get the vaccine, even if we uh, have the cure, people will be afraid to do that. and over time, we might get back to that, but uh, right away. So let me give you an example. We, uh, I'm a board member of Mani McIntyre of New York. It's a nonprofit organization. We canceled all the meetings go, uh, for the rest of the season. So who knows? We will probably go back to webinar, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, set. So people will not uh, easily go back. People will be scared for a very long time.
0: Elena Shuletiva, thank you so much uh, for your thoughts there. Elena Shuletiva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, giving us uh, her thoughts and the thoughts of Bloomberg Economics on these uh, just historic jobless claims numbers. Uh, Lisa, 6.65 million. Put that in com- in, uh, in addition to the 3.3 from last week. Yeah. That's 10 million uh, Americans filing jobless claims just in the last two weeks, which is historic and unprecedented. <music>
1: Well, last year, we had the trade war, particularly between the U.S. and China. This year, it is an information war that is becoming evident every day. Uh, Yesterday, Bloomberg News reported that U.S. intelligence agents reported that Beijing concealed the extent of the coronavirus epidemic and how uh, China, meanwhile, is accusing the United States of seeking to shift the blame for its own handling of the outbreak. Andy Brown joining us now, editorial director for the Bloomberg New Economy, joining us from New Hampshire. Andy, just can you give us a sense of the broader picture here as the China tries to sort of massage its image as the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and as the U.S. perhaps does try to pin the blame on not having better surveillance about how to cope with the virus.
5: Yeah I mean it, it, just to start with this intelligence assessment that you mentioned Um, I mean, we don't have any details of how the intelligence services put together this uh, report, and and and, you know it has to be said that it would have been far more useful to have had this uh, several months or even several weeks ago. Um, Having having said that. Uh, the broad assessment that China is faking the numbers um, is not at all surprising. I I, I mean, the way that China has handled the data around coronavirus right from the beginning has been problematic. Um, It has impeded a global understanding of the nature of the virus and how it's and how it's spread and therefore has affected the way that the rest of the world, um, you know, has, has, has mustered a defense. Um, you know, there's gigantic uh, inconsistencies, for instance, you know, the way that um, so few cases have been reported outside of Wuhan and surrounding Hubei province. When we know that hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of people left Wuhan, um, you know, just before the Chinese New Year and seeded the virus all around China Uh, and in the United States, Bloomberg's own reporting has shown that, you know, patient zero in Seattle had made a Uh, A a trip to To Wuhan Having said that I think you have to Also understand This intelligence report Within the context Of what you just Talked about Which is the new Battlefront That China has opened up In the war On coronavirus Having fought And won Significant victories um, In what they call A people's war uh, On coronavirus They've now opened up A propaganda war uh, With disinformation Which of course uh, Is a specialty Um you know of uh, of the authorities uh, in China.
0: So Andy, is there any sense or any guesstimate that you've seen about the real extent in China?
5: look, i I, I think you can exaggerate this, right? I mean, You know, you see, we we know that Beijing is is returning to life. I mean, shoppers are out and about. Um, You see uh, traffic jams on the Third Ring Road. Friends of mine who own factories, source from factories, supply factories in China are telling me that China is pretty much open for business. I mean, not 100%, but they're certainly getting there. Their problem now is not supply. Their problem is demand. There's nobody in the rest of the world to to buy the stuff coming out of these factories because, you know, the U.S. and, and, and Europe are in lockdown. So I think it's unlikely that China is totally faking it. And it also has to be said that U.S. data aren't brilliant either. I mean, it's only in the last few days, you know, that we've had mass testing in the U.S., which has enabled you know, the country to get a real handle on the extent of the problem over here. And also, I think it needs to be said that, you know, in terms of preparedness, sure, the world would have been far better off if the Chinese had been transparent right from the beginning. But, you know, um, it, it's, it's only recently that states in the United States uh, have accepted the evidence that they've been seeing in, in, in Italy, in New York. I mean, yesterday, Florida, you know, yeah. announces its stay-at-home policies. So data globally has been problematic. Politicians in the, in the U.S., politicians and leaders in China have not covered themselves in glory in this whole episode. And so we are into a blame game now, trying to deflect blame onto the other.
1: All right, this blame game. I gotta be honest. This is kind of a time of some catastrophic extrapolations on on behalf of the person speaking right now. So I'm just <laughs> gonna throw this out there. How much will the blame game escalate? In other words, what are the consequences besides just throwing you know reports at one another and accusations? Is there some sort of practical consequence either when it comes to trade tensions or uh, you know hopefully not, but you know military altercations? that could arise from the increasing blame game that we see going on?
5: Absolutely, lives, many thousands of lives will be lost. Um, as a result of the inability of China and the U.S. to come together at this at this moment uh, to coordinate their response to coronavirus. I mean, you know, I've said this before on on, on the show, but scientists in the U.S., researchers in the U.S. and China need to be working together on a vaccine. Um, You know, they ought to be coordinating the production and the supply of emergency gear, which from China and China still dominates the production of face masks, ventilators, lasers and so on. Um, and what's happening now, and we have had uh, plane loans of supplies arriving uh, in the U.S. from China just the other day. I mean, it was today, or yes, I believe New England Patriots sent a plane over there to, to, to bring back N95 masks. So it's, it's happening, but it's happening in an ad hoc uncoordinated way, in some cases in clandestine way, you know, there's this, there's this uh, uh, global bidding war going on now, but, you know, between countries, between nonprofits, between uh, private enterprises, between speculators to try to get their hands on, you know, Chinese equipment, this needs to be coordinated at a high level. And the US and China need to reestablish a measure of trust in order to make this happen.
0: Andy, is globalization dead?
5: I don't think globalization uh, is dead, but I don't think we go back to the way it was before. Um, You know, it's it's one thing to put up borders. It's relatively easy to put up borders and barriers, and it's much, much more difficult to take them down. I think we are going to see supply chains shifting out of China, starting with medical equipment, as the U.S. realizes that, you know, it is incredibly vulnerable in this critical area to Chinese supply chains.
0: Interesting. Andy Brown, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts and your perspective, as always. Andy Brown. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. And I want to get that last question in there, Lisa, because there's a lot of people saying that globalization is, it may not be dead, but um, uh, clearly uh, just on the, on the downside, it's not what it was.
1: It's a a good question. It's a really important question. It's one a lot of people were talking about last year, even saying that you were already seeing supply chains become more domestic. And you have to wonder whether the coronavirus and the effects will actually increase that that move to domestic supply chains, given the fact that any interconnection at this point is a liability, given what we're looking at.